Hello, and welcome to the XXLA Architects Podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles's leading women in architecture. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today's guest is Annie Chu, FAIA IIDA. Many of the women who practice in Los Angeles will be excited to hear from Annie, as she and Billy Tsien's presentation was one of the highlights of the most recent powerful conference. For me, it was such a unique moment of warmth and serenity. Annie Chu is an architect, interior designer, educator, and a founding principal of the award-winning firm Chu and Gooding Architects. Annie is an alumnus of SciArc and Columbia and trained for 11 years with Todd Williams Belizean Architects in New York and Frank Israel in Beverly Hills before starting her own practice in 1996. Their firm works on projects of many scales, from the design of objects to residential homes to exhibition design and world-class arts, cultural, and higher education projects. LA locals will be familiar with the Hollywood Bowl concession stands, the Autry Resource Center addition and renovation, and USC's Hoffman Hall interior renovation, just to name a few projects. One of the things I admire about Annie is her impact upon our profession on top of her firm's achievements. Annie champions interior architecture as a distinct and emerging discipline and received the Leadership Award of Excellence from IIDA SoCal in 2014. She also received the Presidential Honoree Educator Award from AIALA in 2016 and has dedicated 30 years to teaching. She serves on the City of Los Angeles's Cultural Affairs Commission, AIA Interior Architecture Advisory Group, Contract Magazine's Editorial Advisory Board, and numerous other design award juries. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Annie, which we did socially distanced in her wonderful backyard. We're in good shape. You got that far? I got this far. <laughs> so you were on the powerful Zoom with when Billy and I were talking? It was so nice. Oh, thank you. It's easy when you're old friends for so long, you know, it's just like talking. Can you tell me more about that relationship? Because what really struck me about it is how warm and family-like your conversation and your relationship with Billy really felt. And I think that's actually kind of unusual. For basically a, a boss and an employee, right, basically. Yeah, when I was at SciArc, I have this um, instructor She's very young, and she eventually made a practice with two other women. So it was a three-woman practice, which was so unusual in 1983. And um, I was their second employee. And one of the partners, Patricia Oliver, who's now the dean of University of Houston, you know, know that I was going to be in New York. And so she arranged uh, to write a letter <laughs> to, <laughs> to her classmate from her UCLA graduate days, which was Billy Tian in New York. Billy had just given birth to Tan and her son. Uh, so I arrived at the 1984 and the end of the summer, and she had this public art installation called Art on the Beach uh, in collaboration with the musician artist David Van Tegum, and it was like a big festival. So it was the first time I met her, was actually on this beach, which is basically a landfill in Battery Park City. <laughs> so I went and, you know, in my excitement of meeting her, I did not notice that there was a little baby carrier <laughs> at her foot. And, you know, I almost kicked sand over this newborn, but that's how I met her. Uh, and in the beginning, I was like, they don't have a position. so. You know, I was looking for work in New York. My husband was going to Columbia. Then um, I got a call from them, and it was kind of funny. They said, you're from California, so you know how to draw a pencil, right? I said, yeah. And they said, we have a really quick project. Can you help us? So I came over to their office, and then I started working, you know, on these drawings of this house in Seaside, Florida. So that's how I began in that office in 1984. But I think that part of it is just that we're, our ages are closer. Mm. You know, it's within 10 years. So 
and they were young practice at the time. So it was more of a kind of social camaraderie on top of being, you know, employer employee. And I mean, they are the kindest people I've ever met, you know, in terms of the spirit of architecture in the studio. Uh, it was always about kind of discovery and acknowledging the people who are working there and the contribution. So it was kind of natural that we maintained our relationship with them all this time. So every year we would see each other at a retreat with her classmates. So we would just turn off our devices, except Kindles, <laughs> <laughs> and just like be with each other. And it's really great. You know, she's a step ahead of me and everything, you know, in terms of children, I mean, and career, of course, uh, quite a bit. So she's been my role model as well as like really good friend. Yeah. You know, she even went as far to say that when you, you and Rick were going to move, she thought about just closing the office and moving to. <laughs> yeah. She said that for months. <laughs> we're seriously considering going with you. And, but, uh, you know, every fall when the sky turns steely gray in New York, she wants to be back in California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally understand that. <laughs> Maybe a good way to jump into a conversation about your career and your evolution as a designer is to talk about what influences you've had along your path and your development as, as an architect. I think the influence probably started out with my father. Um, I, I was thinking about it today in, in anticipation of talking to you and I said, well, how far back do I trace this kind of idea of being an architect and interior designer? Where did all that begin, you know? When my sister and I were little, we got in trouble making drawings on the walls of our house. <laughs> And, you know, growing up in Hong Kong, being middle class means that there is a nanny. Uh, my mother was very unusual because she actually has a job. I mean, she was the only mother I know in my whole class that actually work. So she's not home often after school. And our nanny, Hassan, would be watching us. And she was furious with us for, like, making these drawings with pens and stuff on the actual walls of the house. And we were in for like, I don't know what, you know, um, and my father came home, my mom came home and my dad said, do not erase or wash off any of these drawings. And I think that sort of gave me the seed of confidence that whatever I create and I can change my environment around me can stay, you know. Wow. And so very unusual for a Chinese set of parents. And they also do not believe in corporal punishment or anything. So they were kind of liberal for their time. But that stuck with me. I think that idea that, you know, acknowledging your creation when you were just a child and that, uh, that, that alteration of your environment, of your home, is okay. So that's, I think, is the greatest influence. The other one is my mother. Because she worked and we live really remote because my dad insisted that he will have a house. And so he hired a Canadian architect and we actually have a house growing up in Hong Kong, which was unusual. But that also means that we live way out of town uh, where school is and where my mom works. So she picks me up and like, you know, we get dropped off in the morning by my mom and then she goes to work and then on the way there and on the way back home, it was a full-on commentary <laughs> of my mother sort of critiquing everything that is within her view in terms of the environment, fashion, you know, <laughs> what, would, what we would consider the design culture or the presence of design culture in Hong Kong during that time. She would comment on the appropriate, you know, whether this color combination is appropriate and how it could be better. And so, in retrospect, I think that she was basically a closet designer that never had a chance to have developed her talents, right? But that she would critique her world and we would be listening in and we, that, that seems normal to us. And so our minds are starting to go, both my sister and I ended up in design. And it's unusual for our family because both sides of the family, except my dad, were all medical. 
Uh -huh. We're all doctors, and all my cousins are doctors. So I think that those were the clear influence. Then jump ahead, I would say that it has to be, you know, probably in college when architecture was not on the radar. I was just following through whatever seems to be the right thing for, you know, a Chinese girl, an immigrant person in the U.S. to do. And it would be like, you know, you, you pick medicine, law, business, you know, those are the normal things. And I was pre-med. And one day I was in the sculpture studio working away and my sculpture teacher, who's this old British guy, looked at me and said, what's your major and why are you always here? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I think I was fortunate to be in school during the time when you can actually still take electives, you know. And so I realized that I was taking all my electives in the arts. And I said to him, blah, 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 science, blah, 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 art, you know. And he said, have you ever considered architecture? And so I said, okay, I'll go look. <laughs> and I ran into the library. It was a liberal arts education, so they have to subscribe to all these periodicals and journals. Mm -hmm. So you have your domuses and your avataris, and you also have global architecture, the Japanese publication. And then I picked up this current one. And there was this house on the cover, which is this kind of wood house with the wood wall peeled off of it, you know, a house in Long Island. And I said, wow, if this is architecture, that could be really cool. So um, fast forward to one day, a few months into working for Todd and Billy, um, I was in the front conference room, which faces Central Park South, and there's a closet. In the closet, there were all kinds of old publications and stuff. And it was a mess. And so I'm one of those people that once I'm in part of a group, I just do what I think should be done. And I said, this closet needs to be cleaned up. So I was going to go and reorganize the closet. And one of the first things I pulled out was this Global Architecture Journal on the cover with that wood house in Long Island. And it was the first house Todd got published. Wow. <laughs> so I sat down and I sort of like, you know, whatever I do, thank the universe. So it's like affirm that, yeah, I'm in the right place, you know. And so, of course, like Todd and Billy were, you know, in terms of my development, one of the greatest, you know, influences. And right before that time um, was at SciArc. I'm going kind of backwards. That's okay. Because uh, Heather Kersey, who's the head of interior design at Pasadena City College, was that one teacher at SciArc who had a practice with two other women that I talked to you about, who ended up being one of them being a classmate of Billy. So you got all this kind of related connection. Heather uh, was in my second year, uh, one of the first women teacher. And right before her, I have a studio with you know a male instructor and the methodology of that studio was beyond me. It was very prescriptive. You know, the older generation of architects would know what I meant when they said yellow for circulation, you know, red for served and blue for service. I mean, basically we were using these blocks and making buildings from that understanding of those three kind of planning criteria. And I just did not get it. It's just not part of who I am. And so I thought to myself, if this is architecture, I'm not cut out for this. <laughs> so I was ready to just like bolt out, you know. But I think having Heather right immediately after that class, she said, okay, you know, like you're a kitchen sink person. You have many ideas to begin with. That's your process. You will figure out how to deal with that process. And okay, you want to do your drawings in watercolor, go ahead, you know. And so, like, with her encouragement and her acknowledgement that there might be something in me that can be developed, I stuck around. And I think if not for her, I might have been a doctor, but, you know. Wow. Now. So, these are some of my greatest influences. I think the rest of it, I would say that there's one more. Of course, Frank Israel, when I came back from New York to Los Angeles, uh, working with a firm that also, in a different way, very much sort of dealing with 
uh, materiality. You know, both of the firms have this kind of strong skill set in sort of forging materials into an architectural expression. Um, both firms acknowledge the importance of interior space. And I think anyone who worked in New York would acknowledge that, you know, that there's a kind of strong sense of interior architecture that most architects do not get exposed to. And so we dismiss it, you know. But in fact, now as I'm getting older and in my nine years of teaching at Woodbury in the interior architecture program, you know, I can safely say that any time that I work in architecture, what I'm trying to do is create an interior. You know, that's my goal, right? Because that's where we spend a whole lot of time every day, you know, 98% of the time, more so now than ever, right? Finally, I would say that there is an influence of peers. In graduate school when I was at Columbia, I sat next to a friend of mine who was a teacher at University of Kentucky, who then took off to come back to graduate school. And for the entire time we were sitting together, we were obsessed with uh, certain artwork, um, especially this 1920s artwork called the Mertzbile that was uh, an installation by Kurt Schritters. And, you know, so his work was influenced by it. I was through that artwork very much sort of being able to work on the kind of very sculptural plastic side of my leaning. And right after Columbia, with the help of Ken Frampton, I was able to go on this SOM fellowship tour of Mayan and Inca architecture. And I would say that the Inca work felt very, very close because I was very much interested in that kind of relationship between architecture and landscape, which is still latent, undeveloped, but still kind of percolating. But when I was at um, in Peru, uh, looking at all the work that is around Cusco, Machu Picchu, and all this stuff, it just felt the same way that I felt the first time I ever entered a cathedral. Um, I'm not a religious person per se, but you know, during my first couple years in undergraduate before architecture, I went into a cathedral in Rouen, which is the first cathedral I ever went to. And it's Norman, so it's meaning that it's all stone, it's heavy and everything. And there was a sense of the feeling of the space that I registered, but didn't know how to kind of unpack it, right? What does that mean, you know? And then going to Peru, and seeing all the Inca work brought that same feeling of almost like awe or, you know, the sublime, I guess, if you call it, you know, again. So those are kind of all of the influences that I think got me to where I am today, along the way with the support of many, many mentors. Yeah. And a lot of them women, too. You just said so much in that last part. There's so many, like, juicy parts to um, dive into. I think, for me, that feeling of the sublime through architecture is what, for me, drew me into architecture. And I think my frustration when I was a student was trying to figure out what that is. <laughs> and a lot of times when you're teaching, it's not that. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, that that sort of that that level of excellence, right? The exalted experience or the elevated experience, you know, of, of even everyday space. How do you bring it about? And if you try to reverse engineer it, you know, it it looks so complex. Like the emergence of everything clicking, you know, and and connecting to make that experience like that. So actually through these 30 years of teaching, I was like trying to find a way to describe or kind of even in a very analytical way, um, share with my students, you know, all the different instruments that play that composition, right? So it's kind of like a symphony where the orchestral score is many parts and the time is the register. The time of experiencing a space as you walk through is the meter. Right. But every instrument is at play 
And I think that, you know, our brain and skin and everything is so capable of absorbing those influences, right? And, and registering that as a total holistic experience. I don't know how that synthesis work, you know, and, and I, was, I was thinking that maybe if I analyze it and just pull it apart, you know, maybe I can understand how it was actually integrated. But I think that's that might be a fallacy. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever understand it. Well, I'll try to talk about it that way, you know, just to bring up all the different uh, complex layers that make a spatial experience. But, uh, like you said, when you're in school, it's hard to even acknowledge, you know. And, and that comes to that point where people... You know, like when you look at the star architect phenomenon and you look at that as the kind of the genius, right? And I think going through school and finally coming out to practice makes me believe that that also is a failed model. You know, I think I'm really subscribing to the paradigm that you're, you're doing good things when you put your whole sort of passion and empathy for the people you're designing for into that process and hopefully you do something good and sometimes you know if you're skillful enough and the stars align you know <laughs> you get to actually realize it and it turns out good you know but um it's always a distant goal <laughs> somehow yeah for me the best way i can rationalize that feeling is that i'm seeing somebody's care like yeah. I'm seeing somebody's effort and real consideration physically manifested yeah. in a way yeah um, like I'm communicating with somebody you're privileged when you actually have this architectural education and somehow you practice and you were taught how to look at architecture does not mean that architecture is like uh, opaque to anyone you know because it's a very sort of public platform, right? And people will consume it anyway, at whatever levels. But I just felt privileged that when you have an education to look at something and really deeply appreciate and be able to see the thoughts that went into it, because you know what it took to make that happen. It's as if you have an insider's point of view, right? You have a general point of view of feeling really good in a space that was well designed, that has all the consideration for you built into it. So it's, it's unspoken. You just went in there and it fits like a glove and all this stuff. But then you have the other uh, sort of slightly more intellectual viewpoint, which is, oh, I know what it took to get to this point. That kind of privilege of being able to see from behind the scenes is what I really appreciated about my education. There's one place that drove me to tears when I actually went there. It was um, in 2014, um, a Woodbury colleague of mine, Matthew Gillis, and I led some students in the summer for a study tour, part of France and a little bit of Switzerland. And we spent a night at La Tourette with the students. And somewhere in the morning, I went into the, the little chapel part of it and there was a man in there playing organ the light was coming in in color through those gunshot windows and stuff and I I sat there and like the tears just rolled you know it was like you were so moved by that spatial experience and everyone came over and said are you okay are you okay you know I was just so full of joy you know of being yeah. able to experience that and that's like the thing to chase, you know? And I almost got to that feeling again uh, last summer, like in May, Rick and I went to Portugal and, you know, through my, the good fortune of knowing someone who used to work for Alvaro Siza, uh, John Friedman, we arranged to actually be able to spend like an hour or more meeting with him and oh, wow. you know visiting his buildings and you know he's always been like a an enigma for me like it was very mysterious because you know when I was at Columbia I heard about Ken Frampton you know speaking so highly of his work and you know talking about it as a poetic kind of way of doing architecture 
And you know, all you can do is like look at photographs and drawings and stuff like that. Never been in these buildings until last May. And that same thing that you talked about, where you looked at and you realized what someone was thinking about, you know, when they created that thing, was amazing. It was like a real master class. Like you take two steps and you realize something had changed, and you take two steps, something had changed again, and it was this whole sort of architectural journey. It took like a very deep, deep set of. Collective experiences to take you from the outside to the inside of his building. It was so deep, you know, that kind of threshold of experiences to prepare you to kind of really be in architecture. It's just so amazing, so rich, and so well handled that it almost drove me to tears. But it was more of a deep appreciation for someone who's so masterful and. Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of like just a fan girl, you know. <laughs> yeah. I think we all are in order to get into this discipline, right? Or I don't even know it should be called discipline. It's almost like a way of life. With your practice and your designs, how do you balance that desire to try to achieve an architecture that moves you with? You know all the like other requirements, like codes and budgets, and you know all these other things. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about you know Frank Gehry's early projects when there was no budget. Yeah, and, and how amazing those projects were. I think a lot of people subscribe to this feeling too that sometimes when there's just nothing to work with is when you really have to. Squeeze something out of it, and sometimes that discipline actually helps you because the restrictions are all there. There's enough friction that you must react against it. I wouldn't like subject us to like further sort of cinematicistic <laughs> experiences of that.、Eh, give me all the smaller budget things, I work on it. But I think that everyone in practice have sort of experienced those restrictions and. Sometimes when you can turn that around, you know, it's the most sort of joyful discovery. It's actually it feels good, you know.、Yeah. It feels like you're doing something. But yeah, you you look for everyday experiences. You know, you you try to change something. You know, even if it's like if you can change the way you open a door or something, or even spend time thinking about what happens when the door swings. What do you see? What do you not see? You know. Uh, even that, or like, you know, we spend a lot of time in our office trying to、um, anticipate how the space is being occupied. So we're putting furniture plans all the time in our thinking because we have to think about how spaces are going to be occupied and the different ways that people might occupy it. And so. Even if you spend a lot of time sort of honing, you're just crafting the space, honing the design, so that it can react in different ways when people use it differently, and that's all invisible work that might have nothing to do with budget whatsoever, but it has something to do with the quality of space that you would create. You know, even if the materials are very humble,、um, that the space works well, and sometimes like. You know, when we do a, a quite a bit of remodels and additions, you go back to a space that someone else's design, and sometimes even those dimensions, you know, you find that some people have thought about the dimensions and some people have not thought about the dimensions <laughs> of spaces. You up by a foot from the, the room being good, you know, for multiple functions, and so I think that you can do very subtle things as long as you. Have a much more well thought out reason for some things to be, even if it just comes down to a dimension of something. So one of the things that I admire about your practice is that you have a range of project types. So you're not just working on single family or just working on cultural projects, but it, it you're doing both at the same time. Yeah. And. You know, I was thinking about, wow, how do how are they able to do this? But it sounds like your process might be very similar, working on both types of projects. Yeah, I mean, it's totally scalable.、Um, 
you know, if we were designing a piece of furniture or even the product, which we sometimes do, it's the same consideration. You know, it's really about the interaction of use to that thing, whether it's an object or a space, and and that can scale up and down. Whether it's an exhibition design, whether it's a classroom, faculty office, you know, someone's home, or even like the kitchen of the Hollywood Bowl, you know, like all of that stuff. You know, I think architecture school gives you that discipline of rigor that for everything that you're given, whether it's a brief, if you take a deep dive into it, <laughs> or sight, if you take a deep dive into it, the problem will actually present itself with greater clarity. And when that problem presents itself with greater clarity, then your solution can be more targeted or that it will inspire you to think about something like the hierarchy changes, you know, about what's important and what to mine, you know. Every site and every project, if you're just looking at the kind of black and white data stuff, it doesn't tell you things that are sometimes important. You know? So for example, if you come to a site or a building and, you know, in quoting the artist Robert Irwin's um, very influential piece of essay for me was called Being in Circumstance. And he was talking about four different kinds of public art, but to make it short, he basically said his way, which is the fourth kind, is that undetermined material, undetermined idea, you go to the site and you understand all the stuff, you know, history, the sound of the wind, whatever it is, and then you kind of jump into the design for it. and. It's very much similar to the process that we went through in architecture studios when your teacher tried to get you like really to grab onto something that is operative um, when you're presented a brief. So we try to look for those kind of special moments. So even if it's like, okay, we look at a site or a building and to use Irwin's terminology, he would say like, you know, what is the level of craft? level of craft meaning like okay is it like swiss watch precision and it's 10 or no one ever thought about it it was <laughs> one or you know and so if you have a level of craft you also know that you had to work within that range or you know if you want to contrast with it you need to know where you are then it will help you to determine materiality because materiality also talk about the crafting of the material and the tolerances of the material and how you can conjure that material to a certain level you know maybe you want your level of craft to be just two notches up from the existing so that it doesn't become like a strong contrasting factor but somehow it's just slightly elevated or whatever you know so to get into that kind of deep dive mode is what I'm hoping that our our team will continue to kind of practice that type of process so I know that you just wrapped up your teaching career to um, focus on your practice I think Brian told me it was 30 years of teaching uh-huh how did you manage to to balance both teaching and practice for that long? I think, you know, I think it's those role models you have in the very beginning of your career. Like everyone I work for, which aren't too many, all practice and taught at the same time. So it was just like, okay, that's how you do it. You know, that, like, there was no question whatsoever. And when I was... Uh, in graduate school at Columbia and I asked Ken Frampton to write my first recommendation letter for my first teaching job which is um, New York Institute of Technology he wrote something like I think she may be a good teacher you know and I go okay it's like you know good enough for me to get in there you know <laughs> and I always try to like maybe I need to really prove that you know like I don't want to disappoint him <laughs> he said, I may be a good teacher, so I, I'm going to try to be a good teacher. But I think that the balance, it's not so much a balance as whether you have the commitment. I think all of us who taught for a very long time and who are still teaching um, really understood it as a calling. And the calling comes from a place of empathy. Some of the good teachers are the ones who struggle themselves in school and then <laughs> figured out 
you know, how to look at it and uh, share those kind of techniques or aha moments with their students. I would say that maybe I was a B, B plus student, you know, maybe at best, <laughs> you know, so I was never like the genius and the top of the class when I was an undergrad. And so I knew how hard it was to get into the right frame of mind to actually put your brain together in such a way that it will help you produce the thing that you know is there right you know what is what you want to achieve you just don't know how to get there but you you know it when you see it <laughs> right so how do you get to that point so um i mean i'm always like just and enamored with that process of helping a student get to that point um, i think for teachers there's never a better experience than having that let's say a student who is kind of slightly struggling or even you know like even a d student or something and guiding them to a certain point where they became you know one of the top 10 students in your class i mean that that kind of empowerment of transformation is always possible so that's what teachers chase all the time is to help people get to that point of actuating what they have so yeah it's very addictive to be able to be helpful in that way for students and but I also know that the time has come for next generations of teachers to kind of do that work but that my office needed me in a different way you know because this office was started in the end of 96 so you know it's 20 some years now and for the last nine years or so I was really not quite all there because I was full-time teaching um, as well as doing work so always kind of bouncing between the two places and never feeling that uh, I've accomplished something here or there so finally I think that caught up with me that maybe it's time to focus and there's some stuff in me that I need to get out um, having experienced architecture and having taught for all this time that I feel like it could get injected back to work again in some way and like a lot of my friends said well you didn't stop teaching you were just now teaching your office you know or something right um, and I'm hoping that that would be the case you know I admire that a lot um I taught off and on for you know a total of five years and I feel like I burnt out in that amount of time oh. <laughs> I, I mean I really enjoy it but yeah. like when I came into it, it was at a point where I was really disillusioned or like needed to feel inspiration again mm -hmm. with architecture and then when I left I felt like okay I'm I don't need to do this anymore to find inspiration uh -huh. but like now I'm just so overworked yeah <laughs> so I, I don't know how you did that for so long well I mean you're so practitioner yeah right? yeah that's that's hard right because everything is on you you wore all the hats um, many hats that we were not taught to wear you know we have to wear but um, you're young so I think that you figure it out I started my firm in my 30s and I know so little you know about what it means to get in to practice you just go with blinders on and it's probably the best way to do it or else if I know what I know now I mean I know it's cliche I would never have started it you know? <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it seemed like everything seems to be the right time I tend to be very intuitive and follow my intuition so yeah, starting an office was also one of those things. Okay, I think it's time, you know. But I do worry about the state of architectural education. I worry about access to that education, especially when we look at our profession that is so undiversified. And, you know, so it's double challenge. First, it's not diverse, diverse enough. Secondly, it's so damn expensive yeah. to have that education um, besides all the barriers that people have to get through, right? And I think um, even to this day, 
you know, as a woman or minority or something, first time you step onto a job site, you got to be a little bit trembling in your boots, right? You don't know how to behave, you know, and <laughs> uh, how to make the best of it. And, you know, stories that you're told about, you know, discrimination or stories that, you know, you can tell yourself that you've experienced and stuff and how to keep digging in and finding the strength to keep going and helping others. Um, that's why I kind of liked what Billy said at the powerful Zoom when she showed the picture of her when she was a child. She was dressed just like all the other girls, but she was also different and that how she found a way to take advantage of being able to kind of bounce between those two, like the the psyche of the Chinese person and then that of someone who was brought up in the West and, and you know, using both to her um, strength in some way. So, yeah, I, I really thought about that when she said that last time. Yeah, and realizing that, yeah, you know, that's what we were doing, basically. And I think you can say that about keeping your identity whether you're a minority in whatever way, you know, in, in architecture, to that expectation of you as this kind of professional in that, you know, white male dominant profession and stuff. How do you position yourself? How do you take advantage of that friction? You know, and... Um, yeah, um, one of the reasons I really love the discipline of architecture was that for me it felt like an empowering profession, uh, an empowering mindset. You know, because before I knew that I actually liked architecture and wanted to study it, I didn't realize that buildings were designed by somebody. I didn't realize that there were all of these premises um, or assumptions that you're making when you design something or that there's rules that maybe need to change or change over time and the power in understanding that you don't have to take everything for granted mm -hmm. um, that there might be another way so I think it is really important for people who aren't exposed to architecture at a young age to find that mm -hmm. I'm part of a group of a task force for uh, AIA California to get all the academic leaders together in summits to talk about, you know, how can we move forward in a coordinated way? How can um, community colleges and, you know, private and public institutions, their universities and colleges, work as like a total coordinated ecosystem, right? To give more access, to kind of support people. How can we actually, uh, to quote Michael Resek's term, keep working on credibility, you know, of this profession. I was always calling architecture a discipline and more and more now, I'm not sure if I want to call it a discipline or I just want to call it a kind of practice. You know, it seems more welcoming or more broad and more infiltrating to call it a practice and a discipline. The discipline feels like you're holding a set of knowledge, you know, and you are the keeper of the knowledge. And a practice means like you got to actively engage, you know, and I, I like that better. And it brings me back to the a quote that I always quote for Billy Chen when her firm won the firm award of the year. And she said, architecture is a service if practice with love can be noble. And I think that if I go all the way back to why I'm doing what I'm doing, I think that that's sort of really the reason. You know, it can be something that's really contributing um, that you can actually fall on, you know, like just give your passion towards. Sounds like a really special thing, <laughs> right? I mean, careers go or life practices go, you know. So I like that. It's funny because I, I also um, began college as pre-med. Mm. And that was oh, okay. one of yeah. like... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, 
Asian women or Asian. <laughs> I don't know why. You know? Like we have a certain stereotype. But like I think one of the reasons was that I wanted to help people. And I actually found that I felt like I could do that better with who I am, being an architect yeah. rather than being a doctor. Right. And don't you feel like, you know, I think we have a really good fortune in our generations now to look at architectural practices in a much broader way, right, than、mm-hmm. the way that used to you go to architecture school and you better come out and be a Frank Lloyd Wright, right? <laughs> that's all you, that's the goal, right, just to be that kind of design architect. And you know, being in this world for a longer period of time than you, I realize that it takes so much more, right? It takes so many more different kinds of skills and roles, you know, to to realize architecture, you know, whether it's physically or even just in terms of you know creating canon and theory. All of that stuff takes a lot of others to build. With so there's many ways to practice architecture, and I appreciate that、yeah. now more than ever. Yeah. I mean, I think as I've gotten older, I feel like my goals have become much more simple. <laughs> That's a good thing, right? Yeah. You know, one thing that I wish that I could have done more with in those nine years that I was spending at. Woodbury in the interior architecture program is to just have made a little bit more impact in the way that architects look at interiors. This kind of ongoing, centuries-long discrimination, you know, of the comparison between the so-called outside-inside, or you know, architecture is comes before interior, and that you know you don't need deep intelligence and. And knowledge to actually deliver an interior. I mean, it's having experience like really good designers who really deliver that interior experience that integrates architectural rigor and everything else about the interior design disciplines together to kind of deliver that experience. I just wish that more architects. Have that understanding and appreciation,、um, so that they don't perpetuate this ongoing thing about interior designers are somehow inferior to architects. And this, I still, you know, I can come out and say it because I'm not holding any AI offices or anything. That this ongoing struggle of suppressing interior designers to be a licensed profession, I think is. In itself, a total discrimination, and it's a discrimination against the majority of practitioners of interior designers, meaning women, minorities, people who don't fall, you know, in a kind of clear heterosexual male bubble of what an architect is, and I think it's just, you know, atrocious. I agree. With everything you're saying, one of the really simple comments you made at the、uh, Rustic Canyon presentation that I thought was like so simple but profound, and and architects need to hear it and need to be taught it. Like it's not something that naturally comes to a lot of architects. Was just a window needs to be designed from the inside out. Yeah, I mean, it's I learned that from Frank Israel, you know. And he's the one who said, "Yeah, and a window must be first designed from the inside out." It makes total sense, you know. And there's a lot of those kind of interior-driven kind of decisions that we don't, you know. How many architectural studios final reviews have you seen where they actually delivered, you know, a room, right? Like fully formed, you know. Right. How many architecture students actually were asked to analyze a reflected ceiling plan? Right, none. You know that I'm I'm aware of. You know there is a whole frontier in、uh, spatial practices, especially in interior, that、um, some of our colleagues in New Zealand as well as in New York are a little bit ahead of us. You know, and I just hope that the architecture schools realize that they they're doing their students a disservice not to have exposed them. To that kind of quality of design that need is needed to actually deliver 
uh, a well-considered and well-designed interior experience um, because you know you don't know what you don't know really I mean that's cliche but just because you don't know you discriminate against it because you just you know discount it right and you know that it's the same thing with our relationships with other you know all BIPOCs right you know you, you have never had an experience with another person from a different culture so you know right how anemic is that experience you know and, and as an architect you're supposed to design for the world you know and you you have to you have to be engaged I mean I think ignoring or not being proficient with interiors also it alienates us from our clients too it's as though we're not fully considering the impact of a window placement or you know the the lighting quality in a room that they're going to be using yeah so it's, it's directly impacting their lives yeah I think that's why a lot of architects get this bad image. And you can't furnish those rooms. Yeah. yeah. It's very, like, elitist. I don't know how I'm supposed to live in it. <laughs> yeah. It's a rich area to dive into, and um, I hope that that discrimination against that whole entire field, you know, all the way down to furniture design and even decorative arts really, you know, needs to be studied. Well, Thank you so much for giving me your time and your wisdom. Thank you, Audrey. <laughs> That's our show. I enjoyed talking with Annie and learning more about her background, and also chatting with her about the poetry and practice of architecture. To find out more about Annie and Chuan Gooding Architects, please visit cg-arch.com or at Chu Gooding on social media. To find out more about this podcast, you can find me at xx-la.com or at xxla podcast on social media. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Be well.